Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Fintan O'Regan and today I am the host of the Sendcast. I'm also a behavior and SCN consultant. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the Sendcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, I'm discussing ASC and ADHD in adults with the regular host of the podcast, Dale Pickles. Dale is the Managing Director of B-Squared and was recently diagnosed with ASC and ADHD. Sendcast is created and produced by B-Squared. They help show the small steps of progress pupils with SEN make. B-Squared helps schools show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, B-Squared can help. Did you know that you can use B-Squared's assessment software for more than just pupils with SEN? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with Dale to take you through the assessment software. Now let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing ASC and ADHD in adults, and we're discussing Dale's story. My guest is Dale Pickles, the host of the Sendcast and the Managing Director of B-Squared. He's worked in education for over 20 years, supporting schools around assessment, data, and showing progress for pupils with SEN. He started this podcast over three years ago to help and share knowledge around SEN. Welcome to the show, Dale. It's strange being on the other side of the table. <laughs> yes, it is. And it is for me too. Uh, but also it's, it's very fun too. So I get to ask you the, uh, the questions this week, Dale, and it's a really fascinating journey that you've been on. But can I just ask you to start off and say, why is it you, you, you took this route to finding out you know, about this, you, Dale Pickles, after many years of being Dave, Dale Pickles? It starts off being your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I've known I didn't fit in for years. And, and this goes literally back to early secondary school, maybe even primary school, but secondary school, I knew I just definitely didn't fit in. Didn't know why. No, no idea why. And then working from B squared age 21, I kind of learned about autism. I went, okay. Yeah. And then as I read it more, I went, no, some bits. Yes. But like the rigidity, some of those things just weren't me at all. And I remember looking at it going, okay, so it can't be, there must be something else, but nothing else came to me. Nothing else. And I just went, okay, about it. I'm just, I'm not autistic. I'm something else, but I'm just unique. And I was fine being unique. And then we did a podcast on ADHD. And you said, there are four questions I always ask, which are, can you remember them? Not really. No, you have to it's remind like, me. Do you get on with those older than younger than you? All oh, right. There's yeah. a couple of questions. You'd always ask these questions. And I, as, you, as you asked them, I'm going, yes, yes, yes. It was four very clear yeses from what you asked. I was just like, I'd never considered ADHD. In my head, ADHD was bottom set, disruptive, naughty. That was kind of when I was younger, the stereotype, or even in my teenage years, the stereotype ADHD had. So in my head, I wasn't ADHD because I was top set, so I couldn't be. So that 
led me into researching more ADHD. And I thought, perhaps I could be ADHD. And I read it and went, yes, yes, no, 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 no. And just went, okay, I'm still not sure. Still no idea what it is. And then I was somewhere, I think it might be one of the autism shows where it came up, you can have both. And I just went, uh, what? I could, okay, okay, I could have both. And I saw about it all and it kind of, some bits knock out others. And I went, this is getting more sense. I went, okay, cool, I'm probably both. And then it was a podcast I did with Joanna Grace about her journey and her diagnosis. And she was talking about the importance of being diagnosed and what it means for others. And it's almost like as if you are, you kind of, you should be, you should be standing up and being counted. You should be proud of it and you should be counted. And so that was one part. The other bit is my daughter's got autism and I didn't want her to feel I'm a weirdo. So we can be weird together. I'm not sure weird is the right way of putting it, but you can be recognised for your differences and your strengths. And I, I, I do recall now uh, some of the other questions, which was a low threshold of boredom. And I suppose, Dale, in many cases, many people who know you will, will not be completely surprised of, of the validation of, of, of your traits. And we'll talk about that process in, in, a, in a while. Uh, just to make that point, I think a number of adults who've had, and parents particularly, who've had children assessed will be having, you know, done the assessments and, and read some of the criteria. It will have triggered, it will have triggered many thoughts in themselves or in their partners. So I think that's been my experience as, as well. But for your journey, it also, because you honestly know so much about SEN from the range of of guests you've had on the show, obviously some, you know, really good ones and some not as good. Um, but anyway, we have to find out who they are soon. But the bottom, bottom line is, I'm <laughs> just teasing. The bottom line is, is that, yes, it, it will have triggered an awful lot of self-monitoring, self-analysis. But what, what did it mean? What was the journey like, number one, in terms of how did you get the assessment done? How long did it take? I think some people would be really interested in in the actual process of of assessment and to a certain extent the impact it it has on you and the others around you namely your family okay so once i kind of went okay i want i kind of want is my daughter was already on the waiting list for autism diagnosis or with cams and that's going to be about three years and i kind of wanted to get ahead of her yeah, so I kind of could support her on her journey and things like that. And I also know trying to get it as an adult, I probably need a longer waiting list. You obviously have to fight to get on that list as well. So in the fortunate stuff that I was able to go private. So somebody I know recommended a company who, who I approached and they basically sent me an initial questionnaire for me to fill in or a couple of questionnaires about me and my childhood, me now, and then someone else filled it in from my childhood. And so their views of me. And, then, and also I got my, my wife to fill it in, but I also got my colleague, John, to fill it in. And he had a very much filling it in, going, hang on, hang on. So he's on his own ADHD journey for that part. But it started off with the ADHD. It happens, doesn't it, when it you're does. filling these forms out? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we started off on the ADHD part. I didn't realise this company, they specialised, they, they could do both. So we then got into the conversation and I got sent the paperwork for the ASD side and went through all of that. And 
I, for the ADHD part, I'm, I'm in a really strange situation because I run B squared. I've shaped B squared around me. So my day-to-day life is shaped around what I prefer doing and what I don't like doing. Other people do. Yeah. I, and all the things I hate, I go, it's got to be a better way. And I will find easier ways. I will find ways of work. So it's things like, is, are you on, but there's lots of things where there is how I present and how I maybe am behind the scenes that most people don't see. So it kind of meant that I didn't maybe get close to the threshold in certain areas because the way I live my life, whereas if I was in a, in a job working for someone else, I would probably struggle a lot more. So that had a real impact. So I then had to play a game on my phone. I don't know if you know about this, Vinton. No, no. What? So it's a game where you kind of, it's like a, it goes on for about 20 minutes and it's like shapes come on the screen. If it does this, you do this. If it does this, you do that. But you have to have your phone completely disconnected from the internet. You have to sit on a chair. You can't have your elbows down. And basically what it does, as you play the game, it's recording the gyroscope, it's recording your mood, things like that. So I basically just played this game for 20 minutes. At the end of it, when it goes finished, it uploads the results somewhere and somebody analyzes it and kind of gives it, and that goes into the process. So the surveying, I had to do an online questionnaire, which was very American. So some of the wording was really weird. And one of the questions was, do you see things that other people don't? I went, well, yes, because I'm very observational. Then it went, do you hear things that other people don't? I went, oh, you're asking me if I'm seeing things which aren't actually there, which wasn't quite how the, it was kind of, so I did all of this and it kind of came through and went kind of you meet the threshold for a proper diagnosis. And that, that, was, a, that was a really interesting, because I'm literally, in my head, through all my work, I knew, pretty sure, so to get hit, cool, yeah, great. And then February this year, I went down to meet them face-to-face and spent an entire day with two people going through various things. And it's really weird because you have no idea what to expect. And some bits in that day were really odd. I'm not going to tell you why they were odd because I think it's part of the thing is how you deal with it is part of the process. And I then went off and sat in a room for a while. And then I got called back in and was confirmed that I do have ASC and ADHD. And they said in old language, it would be Asperger's and ADD. So that, that was kind of the process. And, and what was the impact on you, first of all, in terms of how did you feel once that was described, if you like, or, 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 or validated by, by, you know, by the assessors? And then what did other people, namely your immediate family, say as a, as, a, as, a, as a consequence? So I remember not being at all worried all day. It was just, I kind of was adamant I was. Then I started getting worried, I think, the day or so before, but what if I'm not? What happens if this isn't me? What happens if I'm in, what happens if it's something else? But I was pretty confident. And they told me the diagnosis, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, blah, blah, blah. I went through it all. And as I walked out of there, I just felt, Literally like I'd passed test. Yeah, it was like opening my A-level results and that sense of relief and, oh, yes, was, it was really weird. And it was really weird because in my day-to-day life, it has had zero impact at all. But what it was for me 
is reflecting on, that's the thing is you go on this process and you reflect on your entire life from your earliest memory. And there are things I had completely forgotten about came out of the woodwork. Cause I remembered one thing, something else would become, and I'd sit there and remember, I literally, I remember one of my primary, these days you put it on social media and everyone comes, but I think in year four or year five, I had a birthday party and no one came. Mm, mm. I'd forgotten about that. Mm. And just things like all those things that come back. And so for me, getting a diagnosis was just a really big, it's not your fault moment. And previously I mentioned that I watch, if you watch Good Will Hunting, there's a whole thing about him being gifted and not fitting in and Ben Affleck's character going, oh, you've got the winning lottery ticket. You've got to cash it in or you're just a chicken, all that lot. But it's when he's hugging Robin Williams, and he's going, it's not your fault. It was that sense of, now, just to be clear, Matt Damon's character went through a lot more worse than my life, but it was that sense of it's not your fault. Those things that have happened to you, all that bullying that you kind of went through in your life wasn't your fault. That was huge for me. And, and as you say, if you remember that scene, it's such a powerful scene when he says, after a while, it's not your fault. And I think that experience you went through obviously was was in in one sense as you said it, it was it was it, it brought back things in your past that you had parked or you had dealt with and and it obviously made a lot more sense to you now when people around you were seemingly doing things in a traditional way that other people were responding to you and you were excluded into a certain extent or people weren't um, weren't not socially at the same to you as they were to others do you look back with any kind of, if not the word resentment, do you look back with any kind of blame on, on the adults in your life who were there to support you both in school and to a certain extent at home? This is, talking to Joe Gray, she, she goes through like so many stages of acceptance and anger and denial and things like that. And I have gone through lots of those stages especially as part of the process, I had to get all my old school reports out. And I have every single school report from like year one all the way through to college. And when you look back through them, it's all really obvious. And if someone had just laid them out when I was younger and gone, hang on. But back then in the 90, early 90s or late 80s, was we just where we are now with our understanding, we weren't there. So from that point of view, I really kind of just go, they did the, we were doing the best we could at the time. And you were possibly not as you, you, you were more, what we call it again, mild to moderate versus moderate to extreme. And, and those young people who make the most noise get, 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 get the sort of get the results and you were, but you were adapting each day, each day. And you have adapted massively to, to have achieved what you've achieved. And, and it's of no surprise to you that you now know that a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, who are very successful businessmen, have, have these traits. So although it has been a difficult journey for you and there's been some real negative aspects to it, do you see it also as being, if not a superpower, but being something that has been advantageous to you? So. When I look back over my life and as you said, the adults and I look back through the moment I left education, 
that's a kind of a two-stage thing because I did go to college, but I worked at IKEA in the warehouse with adults. I was 16, but to me, I was still a child in my head. And these were adults type thing. And I was a wide range of people. And that was a really different experience to being in school or college where there's an adult telling children what to do. And being on the same level as them, being seen as an equal and all that, that was a real, really amazing learning experience. And what was amazing is all the struggles I had in school, bullying, the social side, the just not understanding why things were happening. None of that happened at work. So work became a happy place. for me. I was in a warehouse. So I worked in the warehouse in Ikea. You know, when you order something, it just appears on a trolley. I was one of those people who put it on a trolley. If you ordered a kitchen, I would spend 45 minutes putting everything apart from the door handles on trolleys and wheeling it out. It was simple. It was easy. It didn't take a huge amount of power, but we had lots of fun. And from that point on, so at Ikea, I did Domino's delivery pizza for a little bit and working at B Squared. It has been either completely not really impacting at all, or it has been a superpower. Whereas at school, it was the opposite. And that's why if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear me bash secondary school life. And you talked about compliance, this conformity. I bash it because it was an unhappy place for me because I didn't fit the mold. And as we was discussed on the future one about dual and multiple exceptionality, academically, I was up here, set one, that sort of stuff. But socially and emotionally, I was much more immature. I was much lower. I didn't know that. It wasn't recognized around me that that was the case. So I just struggled lots and never understood why everyone else is getting on fine and I'm struggling. But yeah, once getting out outside of college, so even at college, it was all right, but I still didn't. But working with adults, none of it mattered. And I started, none of it mattered, which then I think gave me confidence. And But what I found is in school, you learn something because generally someone was telling you what you should learn. Now, primary school seemed more better, but secondary school, you learned stuff because you had to learn stuff for an exam. And it wasn't always relevant. And some of it was useless, things like that. So I struggled with that. Whereas when I was at Ikea, I was earning money. And I quickly worked out the better I was at my job, the more overtime where I would get and I can get promotions and things like that. So I worked hard and I made myself invaluable. Yeah, so I learned lots. But it was my interest and my ability which really got me there. And so I did really, really well at IKEA. I became really invaluable and learned lots, improved various things around the store. I absolutely loved the job because I could see the impact of what I did. So what I was doing became very relevant and needed, and I could see the result. And what I learned about myself, and I didn't learn it then, I've learned it since then, is I like doing things where I can see a result. Mm-hmm. And and to assert you are the classic case of the being the developmental difference where you got on better with younger and older. And that that is that I'm sure that resonates with many people who are parents of children with ADHD and who are now adults who are thinking very much along 
the fact that you know this is something that they experienced too, and and this now makes a lot more a lot more sense on on why they just didn't fit in with the, their age group at a school situation. The the other thing you said though, which was very interesting, just we've made this point about what Dale has done. First of all, there's always great meatballs at uh, IKEA that we just need to remind you of, and potentially you've had a few of those, Dale. But the point being that. As a as a as a leader of a of a of a organization like B Squared, you said that you've kind of you've designed how it works for you in terms of your your skills and the other things that may have difficulties for you in terms of some of the elements of your of your traits. You're able to have other people do that for you. So as you say, you've created it's a, it's a it's a little bit of the Bill Gates variety who says, he always says, be nice to nerds because the chances are you'll end up working for one. It, it's in that sort of territory, is it not? Would you say? It kind of is. And it's interesting because I, I run the company and I treat people how I want to be treated. And, and when I was at IKEA, I had an amazing boss who really taught me how to be a boss. I didn't know it at the time. You just don't, kind of, you learn without learning. And he would always give out a horrible job. There's always a horrible job every Saturday morning. And I turn up at a Saturday morning, not feeling great. And you don't make eye contact because you'll get chosen. But no, he never did it that way. He knew who had done the job. It was a very much rotation. So you never got it more than others. It was very fair. And it was a horrible job. But what was amazing is he did that horrible job with you every Saturday. And so he wouldn't give you out a job unless he was willing to do it himself. And that was a really important thing that nothing really should be below you and things like that and treat people how you want to be treated. All that sort of stuff absolutely flows through everything I do, but that's not even within the company, but I do it with the customers as well. For us, it's, you get some companies annoy you, don't they? Yeah. You're on hold three years on from COVID and we're still getting, we're on, uh, you, you find up a company with you. It's like, unusually high call volume. It's like, it's been like this for three years. It's not, yeah, come on. And so, yeah, so everything about it is I think about how how it's seen, how it's perceived, and how I would want, to, if I was that customer, how I'd want it to be, which is strange because in theory people with autism don't have empathy but, or compassion, but that's kind of what that is. I think of other people more and make sure that for those who work me they're enjoying their job and they're feeling valued part of the team and everything that's for me it's really important not on a superficial level but it is really really important that they like being here and it's the same with our customers it's that will always flow through me whatever i do kind of everyone else comes first and you kind of it comes it's a, a circle comes back to you i find yeah i i, I mean i think what you're saying is, is in i'm taking it that having experienced some of the things that didn't work for you in social settings and in, and in other areas, you have, you have absolutely sort of stored them up and, and maximized that. Because what I think you're saying is you will also have people within your organization, be it at, at certain levels, who will have traits themselves. And having known what didn't work for you, you'll make sure that you're making the place very neurodivergent friendly for them. On the, on the issue of people not catching up from COVID, I, I completely concur with you on that. But hopefully there, there will be a, a change in, in that area. Again, 
In terms of your colleagues, though, and in terms of your family, again, what has this meant for them in terms of how have they responded to you in, in this way? I use the term weird, and I use weird a lot because I'm, I'm, I like being weird. And if generally, if people meet me, you like me or you don't. I'm not, not in a horrible way, but just I, I am who I am, and I'm now very confident and comfortable with that. And to me, it hasn't changed anything. And people have always, what does this mean for you? They've, always, they've been really accepting. Not one person has gone, oh, or anything. I said to Lorraine Peterson, I told her, and I said, oh, I had an assessment. Guess what I was diagnosed with? And she just looked at me and went, autism and ADHD. It's like, you knew. But, but she herself would, would also qualify, yes. uh, particularly on the ADHD area there, we're not saying. And, but, so going through my diet, you realise actually you kind of surround yourself with like-minded people. And I have an amazing team here who are all really passionate and really understanding that everyone is different and everyone has, I'm going to say their own baggage, but their own gifts. And you take that as it is, and which means I treat everyone as an individual. And me and my colleague John have lots of conversations around various things around identity and gender and things like that. And basically, we kind of like everyone is an individual. You don't kind of have a general rule for men or a general rule for women or general rule for that. You just treat everyone as an individual, but treat everyone with respect. We every Tuesday we have a like a team get together. Because some of us work remotely, some of us don't. So we, it's Tuesdays where we all get to get together. Yeah, we can all find out what's going on in everyone's lives. And some people love that moment. Some people love talking. Other people will sit there quiet. And some people are just happy quiet, yeah? But some people aren't, but they don't know how to deal with it. So I, I try and maybe throughout the week, try and find out things that have happened to people, or things that have gone on in their lives, or even just follow on social media to give them an opportunity to talk for themselves. It's not that they just don't know how to bring it up or they're, un- they're not confident or they think no one's going to be interested. But it's, it's, again, from lack of that maybe happening to me in my childhood, is just doing that for others. So actually, and generally, most times it happens, a whole conversation sparks off and they're the centre of attention. It's great. Now, just be clear, if they're not comfortable doing it, I won't do it. But what I've just learned with a lot of people who are maybe quiet and shy, they just don't always have the skills and it's just making making sure that some people don't dominate the entire conversation and everyone gets an opportunity to be part of it and be valued and and again you know without telling you what you're knowing you you've been a, a leader in this area for a number of years in terms of SEN and neurodiversity particularly in schools but i would i would suggest that now you could well become a leader of this in 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 business and in in you know in the workplace because as we know that neurodiversity is very much behind you know diversity in 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 other areas in the workplace both in in you know, it, it, you know obviously with race and and in and in gender we've done a lot of work on that but it it's still it's still very much under recognized in the workplace and, and i would suggest that you know, one of one of your projects for the future is is to is to definitely you know to to promote the support of of this in the workplace because you're actually living it. Now that that will then hit on one of my big challenges, which I don't think I'll ever fully overcome, which is the whole like, whole imposter syndrome. That's something is 
I suffer from hugely. And perhaps, so on this podcast, we always talk about autism and things like that. And we always say, oh, if you want to know about or you really talk to an autistic person. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I, oh, actually, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I haven't got the badge. I haven't got the certificate. And I felt like an imposter. And, but even now, and I've got the, I've got, I still don't feel because it's I'm not hugely impacted. Some people's autism really impacts them, and it's a really negative part of their lives that they have to they struggle with. And if I'm saying this wrong, I don't mean I'm not great with words. Or, or so if I have offended any of this, sorry. But it's, some people, it's it's a battle. They kind of feel like they're battling their autism. They want to live a normal life, but they can't. Others embrace it fully. So because I'm not huge, I feel I still feel like. I'm impostering. Yeah, I'm not that autistic. It's that sort of feeling I have. And when people talk about, oh, you should, you're a leader, I, I don't feel like I'm a leader. I never have felt like. And it's interesting. There's a video on the internet which John showed me, and I love it. It was, it's, it's a whole alpha male thing. It's a video of a bloke just dancing in the middle of a field on his own. It was like a music fest, a music play, but he just started to dance on his own. And when he's on his own, he looks weird. But someone kind of looks at him and goes, that looks fun, and he joins in. And what's interesting, it's that, sec- it's that first person accepting what that person's done kind of made that person a leader, and then other people join in, but he needed that second person. But that person dancing on their own didn't want to be a leader. They just were doing what they wanted. So I've not set out to be a leader. I don't feel like I'm a leader. I have lots of amazing people like you, Finton, who come on the podcast and tell me I'm great, and I just don't feel it. I just feel I'm a facilitator for all of you. But I think your analogy about how when some people recognise that someone is is doing something, which is in this particular case dancing, but it's different, but is important, and and it's and and it and it's it's improving, you know, the quality of some someone's life, and someone says, well, oh, I I wouldn't mind having that experience too. You might be a reluctant leader, let's put it that way, but you are leading in 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 many areas on in this area. On that issue of person, where do you stand on the issue of being uh, an ADHD and ASC person versus a person with ADHD and ASC? You, if you take away my autism and ADHD, I would not be who I am. To me, in my head, other people feel differently, but to me, they have made me who I am. You cannot take that apart from me. I do not want it. No, is now if if you told me in year eight at secondary school we can make it all go away by just taking it all, I probably would have said yes. I would have at that point. I just wanted to be liked and normal, and I'm air quoting normal. Where I am in my life now. I didn't get my diagnosis through hugely negative reasons. So some people, when they're getting a diagnosis in their adult life, something has happened which has caused them to get the diagnosis. So I haven't gone through a negative experience for to get my. I've just done it out of curiosity and wanting to, and wanting my daughter to feel part of something and not alone. So yeah, I would not take any part of that away from me. And to me, you cannot separate it. I know some people see it as there's me and there's my autism. It's like 
I feel that my autism and my ADHD is entwined in every single part of my life. And interestingly, I do sit there and I ask people lots of questions about how their head works. Because I'm really fascinated about what goes in in your head. I'm trying to work out how many people's head inside works the same as me. And there's, I, just, I find that fascinating. And I find that certain things I have in my head are neurodiverse. And I would hate to lose it. I would really hate to lose that part of me. And, and it is part of you. It is you, as you said before. In terms of for other adults who are listening here today, well, most of you probably will be adults, who are considering or thinking about, if you like, having an assessment or, or investigating the option of an assessment, what would you say to those people? What, what, what's the, what's the, the, not the pros and cons, so to speak, but what do you think the advantages are versus, versus not, not necessarily doing it? Because, and just saying, I am who I am. I, I don't need to have someone else tell me who I am or what, I, what it is that, that makes me unique or different. Hard question. It but- is a hard question. And again, I'm in a very unique position because of the work I do, the people I meet. I was fully armed with so much information before I even got anywhere close to a diagnosis. And when I came out of diagnosis, it was, I probably had half an hour just sitting there going, and then I've been processing in the background as I've gone along, but it hasn't really interacted because I was very much aware of everything anyway. Whereas when I meet adults at the autism show who've been recently diagnosed, they're going, I've come along to find out what I don't know. And so for, I think a lot of people, they will have unanswered questions why their life has gone the way it's gone. And it's the same with ADHD. I meet people and somebody running four different businesses, and I'm going, yeah, somebody can't sit still. And it is, you, re, you realise actually these really passionate people, Lorraine, Jane Friswell, Aaron, people like that, actually these really busy, focused people, probably are ADHD or neurodiverse in some way. But yeah, for some people, there's this whole bits they struggle with through their lives, which they think is them. And... It is you, because autism and ADHD is part of you, but it's, you have no choice, yeah? You're, you're not great at the area, but you've done nothing wrong. And for me, finding that out is a real, was really amazing. It really was. And, and what I'm saying to my daughter is, if you get a diagnosis, it's not an excuse. The world is the way it is. For you to probably get the most out of life, you need to fit in with the world. So if you struggle with something, you've kind of got to put the effort in to kind of overcome it. Yeah, my, my, again, my daughter isn't hugely impacted by her autism. The bit she struggles with, quite a social and emotional side, a bit like what I've struggled with. So we're supporting her. And I'm saying just because you can't just say, I'm rubbish at that, I won't do it. It's like, no, it just means you have to work harder in that area. And same, some, in the way some spend hours upon hours revising for exams you kind of have to do hours and hours upon revising to be social Mm. it's and you yeah i mean putting it in 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 that sort of context is you know because it it, however way we describe it's a social difference or it's perceived socially whether or not one is the other but your other reason if you like for for having gone on this journey was very much as you say to 
to be a more aware and a more sort of well, a sort of well-informed parent about, to a certain extent, how to parent your daughter, and at the same time understand the condition, you know, her condition, but understand your own sort of style of parenting, but also, as you say, not not for her to feel like she was that that she could use this in a way to excuse her from things that that she needed to maybe be adapting in. Yeah. And, and that process, I think, is, is one. And you can qualify it, can you not, by saying, I'm like, I know how you think to a certain extent. I have the same sort of challenges and everything else, but this is how I'm, how I'm addressing it. And also it's a very lovely thing for her also to feel to a certain extent that, you know, that, that she's, you know, she's, she's like dad <laughs> or dad's like her, whichever way around. And that's the thing is, we can really bond over that little bit there is she'll struggle with something and she'll look at me and go, it's all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's all oh, your yeah, fault. Funny. And it is, but it, yeah, it yeah, is my yeah. fault. Yeah, completely yeah. It is. Yeah. But we can have that, we have that bond, we have that understanding and you'll always come across nature versus nurture, that whole conversation. And I'm a bit, it's both is the answer to me. It is both. And I think what can happen is if you have parents who are autistic and they live their way, their life a certain way, which suits them, and then they bring their children up who are also autistic, is you're kind of making, I'm going to say, this, a super autistic. I don't like doing social things. So we get rid of all social things out of our lives and we'll just do the bits we love. And it's kind of like you're teaching them to not be. So part of me is kind of going, I need to know about me. I need to know where I struggle. I need to know what I avoid. And then I've got to work out, should I avoid it or should I put myself in it to show my daughter, you need to do these things. And that's a really hard thing of trying to make sure that although I am autistic, my choices and how I want to live my life, I've got to try and give my daughter a much more balanced life where she experiences things that everyone else does because so she can, and one of the things, it sounds really weird, but Nando's. Mm, mm. You like Nando's? I, I like Nando's, yeah. I really don't care. John took it John took me for Nando's once and <laughs> I was completely underwhelmed. Underwhelmed, yeah. I was yeah. completely was. But Nando's is a big thing for the kids. All the kids love Nando's. And I was just like, that realization is if if I've not taken my kids to Nando's and they go, they'll feel really kind of socially awkward. Well, how does this work? So we took my kids for a Nando's. My wife didn't want it, I didn't want it. But we took it so my kids kind of knew how you order it, how it works, everything about it. So if she, they go with their friends, they'll fit in. And that's one of the things I think that I've really, really made sure I've done is I spend time thinking about how to make my children invisible. So in school, they are not noticed. They fit in. Now, whether or not it means I'm buying my daughter who really doesn't care about clothes, Adidas trainers and three-stripe leggings and all of that, because that's what everyone else is wearing, just so she fits in and no one notices her because that will make her life easier. Because what I found when I was at school, I didn't fit in. I had the wrong clothes, the wrong trainers. I got bullied. And, and you know, and, and people will be listening to this thinking, oh, why do you want to make, why can't we accept them for the way the way they are and i mean that's the dream that's, that's the dream that's, that's the dream but we have to acknowledge we're not necessarily at that point yet 
And the other thing to point out, as we have done another, if you do have SEN, you are three times more likely to be bullied than if you're not. We're changing that culture. We want the bystanders not to follow the bully, but to yep. be upstanders in the same way they do for they do for other forms of diversity. But we're not at that point yet. No. And, and, and I was going to say, and each parent obviously does what they believe is right for their own child. And not everyone necessarily will agree on the route, but that is the, that we all agree on that one point. They do what they want, they think is best for their child at that time. And I think buying different trainers, things like that, isn't really changing my daughter who she is. My daughter, both my daughters are amazing. I accept how they are. And just a few little tweaks, which they are oblivious to, it has no impact on them, makes a big difference to them. And as I said earlier, me leaving education is kind of when all the bullying stopped. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. You went to a firm where, you know, an adults where you'd think, oh, that you're more likely to stand out, if you like, whereas you didn't. You, you, you fitted in in a, in a culture because they have that, that variance of, of different people there who were probably not all some dissimilar to yourself anyway. Well, I, one of the things I love about IKEA is if you've been in IKEA and you've talked to one of the people there, you may have talked to the store manager. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because when you work at IKEA, you all wear the same uniform. There's no job descriptions. And the first time I met the store manager is I was doing something I really shouldn't. It broke health and safety rules. But I was doing it because it was quicker. So therefore, we helped the customers when we were really busy. And he probably goes, you shouldn't be doing that. I went, well, it's obviously quicker. And I went off. And he goes, I said, you really shouldn't be doing that. And I went off. I went, who's that idiot? Someone else. He went, what, him? I went, yeah, that's the store manager. <laughs> and he didn't come at me. So I was used to head teachers mm -hmm. who pompous, blah, blah, that yes. sort of you will respect me type attitude. And he just went, I wouldn't do that. And I was going, and that, that literally, I think I worked on that process in my head of, he didn't shout at me. He didn't tell me off. He didn't pull me up. He just said, I wouldn't do that. And what that meant is when no one else was around, I still did what I did. Anyone else was there. I didn't do it because kind of, I just, I didn't know if I should or shouldn't. And it was a respect thing and everyone else did it. So I did what everyone else should do. And it's kind of, I really respected him because he treated me like a human. And he treated you, as you say, he treated you in a developmentally appropriate way for how you perceive social situations at that time. The other thing, of course, is that everyone here thinking of IKEA will all have one of those indestructible little yellow plates and a, a green cup, and we'll have four or five items that they didn't really want to buy in the checkout, but they were there because it was in the queue to get there. Dale, one question I'm going to ask you is about the, on the ADHD element of your diagnosis. Have you considered or were you advised or would you ever be in, in, in it? considering the issue of medication? Simple answer is it's not for me. And just to be clear is I was really, I had no idea about the medication. We've recorded a podcast on it. And before that I watched a BBC, I think it was Louis Theroux documentary on, AD, on ADHD Correct. and medication in America, which was really fascinating. I kind of, in my head, it was forced upon the children. And in the episode, uh, one of the show, um, a girl 
agree to not take her medication so she could see how she changed. And partway through, she went, I can't do this. I need the medication. She could recognize in herself how she changed. Now, I'm not hyperactive. I'm a fidgeter. Right now, I'm fidgeting with a pair of Star Wars cufflinks, which are on the desk, because I always have he to have is. something to fidget with. He is listeners, yes. I always, my hands are busy, but that, and my head is busy. But that's as far as my hyperactivity goes. So when I'm in the classroom and I learn, I still go on Microsoft courses. I sit at the back because I will be leaning back on my chair. I'll be on social media. I'll be playing. I'll be doodling. I'll be thinking about lots of other things, but I'm still very much paying attention. It's just not how I work. So to me, I don't have to be in situations where I have to sit there and conform and sit in a chair and be a model student. Therefore, the fact I play with this throughout this podcast, the fact I do all this stuff has no impact on the outcome of this podcast. In my life at home, I'm different, but I don't have that impulsiveness. I don't have that hyperactivity. Generally, I've learned, and it might be the fact my autism and that balances it out. I've talked about the, I think it's called the chimp paradox, which is mm, where yeah, yeah, yeah. you have the chimp part of your brain, you have the computer. And in my head, what that ADHD medicine does is just slows the chimp down. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Not disables the chimp, but slows it down. So you get the response from the computer, maybe before the chimp, or you get them at the same time and you can make an informed decision. And I find whenever I do it, I have to make a decision. I work out plan ABC and I will go out on the best one, which makes the best, the most logical sense. So I don't have that impulsiveness. Now, I used to. I used to get into lots of trouble when I was young, not full on. I never got excluded in any form of way or suspended as we were back then. But I was probably a bit of a nightmare in teach by teachers and stuff like that. But I just, I don't have that. So I don't feel I need the medication. But I think the, my fear is because I don't need it, it's not really on my radar, but my fear would be is would it change me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if my ADHD was impacting my life more and I felt it really getting in the way, it would be something I would probably would consider. But I don't live in a, way, in a world where I have to conform. I can be who I want, which... Again, I think that's one of the challenges with secondary school is you have to conform. You've got a lot to get through and you've got to get your GCSEs. You can do them later. Reality, if you can get the GCSEs by age 16 and get them out of the way, you can then move on with your life. I think you hit the, you know, you've said, you've you've answered that question a, very honestly and very in my very, very sensibly, beautifully, if you like, really, because I think what you've been saying again is, you know, it's it's something that we know we've had conversations about it. It's not a, you don't have to have, you know, this option. It, I suppose having the diagnosis creates the opportunity if you wanted to go that route. But I think what you've also clarified is that, you know, terms like ADHD, which are used to describe the traits you have are still somewhat environmentally effective in terms of, you know, your, your situation. And in a school, you don't get to choose what you do. You're, it's tended to be imposed upon you. As an adult, of course, you've adapted and gone into an area and, and organized in, and, and developed a company based on your skill sets. You've kind of chosen, to a certain extent, your environment. And therefore, 
the, the, the requirements for you to support you are, will be different than the school. So last couple of points for people again, who are again, making this, making, going through this journey because either they themselves have a child with ASD or ADHD, or they've had some people say to them, look, why don't you, or do you think you do have, what would you say would be three, you know, last sort of points that you would say are that you have learned from having gone through the process of assessment and, 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 and what's happened subsequently? I just want to go back before I answer those. I'll try and remember that is you just talked about, I've shaped the company, how I want that. When you're at school, you go to your local secondary. You have no control over the people around you. Correct. You have limited control over the subjects until you get to year 10. And you have limited control over that person telling you what to do. The moment you become an adult, you've got a choice over the career, mm. which generally means you're choosing the type of person you're surrounding yourself with. And you're going to go into a company, and if you don't like that boss, you get another different job. So again, as an adult, whether you, you're fortunate enough like me to really shape your environment or you're in a job, we have so much more choice as adults that really has a big impact on our lives. Whereas in that secondary school, it's forced upon you and you've got to soak it up. We go back to this issue of schools, compliance, business being different. You're absolutely right. And thank you again for clarifying that because it, it is it is you just you do have more more choice about direction whereas at some phase in your life when you were at secondary school you had to conform to what everyone else yeah sorry i was a lot of, lot of questions i was asking you something which is which is 5 minutes ago and we know how memory <laughs> and attention are affected by this so i'll just i'll just repeat it again i'll just say maybe last three salient points from from having gone through the journey of assessment and what's happened since then what would you say to adults who are thinking about possibly going going through this route? So I remember my nephew got diagnosed for dysgraphia and his first response was, I'm not stupid. And to me, that is all I ever needed to know about a diagnosis. Yeah, a diagnosis is, it's not my fault. I'm not stupid. It's not something I've done. It's the way it is. Yeah. And that's nothing I can really do to change it. I struggle with this. Okay, but I can do things about it. So a diagnosis for me is a big rubber stamp piece of paper telling me it's not my fault. And you cannot underestimate how important that is to people. Yeah, it really for the things that happen in their lives to finally find out that out is really, really huge. And if you are a social media person, if you're on the tick of the talks, which is not my favorite thing at all, it's quite fashionably to be diagnosed with autism. In America, I think you can literally say to your doctor, I think I'm autistic. And they'll say, yes, you are. A bit more than that, but not far off in my understanding. And you get a certificate saying you're autistic. So there's a thing that if you, if you haven't got a diagnosis, you, you aren't really autistic because they're so easy to get in America. Whereas here we've got a waiting list. So, but it's really hard to distinguish. So my daughter's come across that. She I can't, but I haven't got to like, explain to the difference. So for me, a diagnosis is a wait. It's worth the wait. 
for me, getting my diagnosis means absolutely nothing to anyone else but me. Mm, mm. Okay, so that's the first thing to think about with a diagnosis. It's not going to change anything else about anything. It's about me and me knowing who I am and things like that. So if you get a diagnosis for your child of autism, don't suddenly expect that everything at school will change. Do not expect any children to change. Do not expect any additional support. That all depends on many other factors. The diagnosis is about you and your child. It's about removing blame. Mm. Yeah. So you, you sit there. That comes and out very strongly from you. From it's, your have, have you ever been on a plane where you've got a screaming child or your child is just being unruly? Yeah. You might have gone, oh, parents. Yeah. Now take a step back and go, that child's autistic. Whether well, they're not or not, they're autistic and they're really not happy in this environment, but they've got to be on this train or this plane to get to somewhere. And that parent is doing everything in their power to not have this happening, but it's still happening. I've now not blaming the parents. I'm now literally feeling sorry for both of them. And I'm thinking, should I go up and say anything I can do? Yeah. Yeah. It's that blame. Yeah. So if your child isn't doing what you're told, yeah, they're really being naughty. They're doing this. They're doing that. Why are you not doing this? I struggled with sleep until I was about 15, 16. And I learned how to fall asleep. Now that really might coincide with when I left education. I'd have to really think about that. But I learned how to fall asleep. Before that, I used to struggle. I remember being awake at one o'clock on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day as it was then, 1 a.m., crying because I couldn't fall asleep and Santa wouldn't. I really struggled with sleep, which made me tired and things like that. So there are lots of things I struggled with. And if you're not the perfect child, your parents might feel things are your fault. So again, a diagnosis is it removes the blame. They cannot help it. It is the way it is. And you know this from a parent, you get told you're a bad parent, you're a rubbish parent, and it's actually, it's your child's diagnosis. It's not help. So for me, the diagnosis can really change that actually having that diagnosis brings the parent and that child together. Because, and, but it doesn't change the outside world. Don't expect it to. We are getting much better as a, as a, as a society and things like the sunflower land yards or whatever. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not everyone wants to wear them. No, it, it isn't. Some people just want to be identified as, as who, who they are. I, li- I like it. I think it's in America they have two different, what's, some sort of have two different colour baskets. Yeah, that's right. They do, yeah. yeah. And, and stores Leave are... Leave me alone. I want help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually probably quite a... The Americas, we do, they do get things done. Yes. So <laughs> it's... And with all neurodiversity, everything is a spectrum. So my journey is going to be very different to everyone else's. Mm, correct. What I've also learned is every time I watch a program on TV about autism, it doesn't reflect my journey. And it probably won't reflect, but it reflects someone's journey. But what I also like is I'm watching the characters around. So I like the atypical, which is an American one. I love watching the characters around. But also I think you look at other things. So you talk about, Goodwill Hunting, mm. he was out of doubt he's neurodiverse. And out of all the neurodiverse characters, Matt Damon's character in that film is the one I relate to. Now, mm. Mm. I've not had the abusive family. I've not had any of that. I don't compulsively lie like him. I'm not scared. You can't uh, fight like him either. I, I, yeah, I really wouldn't fight like that. But 
the kind of the gift, how he sees and the stru- things like that, I recognize in mm. me. Mm. So a diagnosis is only positive to me. It's not a burden. It's, you're not giving your child a label by getting a diagnosis. That child already had that label. Whether you get a diagnosis, I didn't become autistic or ADHD at 43. I was always being autistic and I've always been ADHD. I only really found out at the age of 43. So you're not giving your child that label. You're just helping them to understand themselves and therefore make changes and support themselves and put extra effort in if they want to, where they need to. Dale, we could spend hours talking about this. In fact, maybe we need to have (laughs) a part two of this journey at, at some point. We're going we're gonna to wrap up here today. Thank you very much for your time. I just want to say, listeners, he's also an excellent presenter because it's a lot easier answering questions than, 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 than trying to deliver them. So I, I've had a go today. I've really enjoyed the experience of, of asking you questions, Dale. I think it's been a, a fabulous talk. It's been a really up, uplifting, I'm sure, for many people who are thinking of, of, uh, of going through this journey. So I'd like to say thank you for opening up to all of us today. And so it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. But I would just like to add at the very end is some of you who've met me and know me in real life might sit there and go, oh, I didn't know. And that's fine. Others will go, yeah, kind of knew all the time. In reality, it doesn't matter to anyone else if I have a diagnosis or not. You should accept each person as they are. They don't need a diagnosis. As, as Finton says, you don't need to give, have a diagnosis to be able to support a person in that way. Now, all you should do is, oh, Dale's a bit like this. I'll support him that way. Or you might not even notice, but that is what I would say is if you sat there and got, I've known Dale for ages and I never knew this, it still doesn't make any difference. The next time you meet, you might mention this podcast and nothing will change. And that's the, that's the thing. Nothing changes just because I've got a diagnosis. It's just the start of the journey, isn't it? Really? It is. And here's the thing we know about Dale as well. He also will be producing many fantastic products for B Squared and for Sencast. And he can also put together for you a set of drawers if you want to at any time. <laughs> I, you know that, you know, in the Lego movie, they, do, they look at that and say, yeah. I'm the same with Ikea. Yeah. I love yeah. building Ikea furniture. I love it. And uh, just to mention meatballs, I will leave you the fact that I had a bath in meatballs and gravy by the checkout in Ikea Gordon in my pants in the late 90s for charity. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is neurodivergency for you, explained and expressed. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye.